please stand now for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is John 1, 4 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. <clears throat> it's good to be with you all this morning. I'm Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the downtown campus. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. And you could probably tell through our scripture reading that we haven't moved very far. We're still right in the beginning, uh, but we've been here in the Gospel of John for a couple weeks. We're staying within the prologue, which is considered to be the first 18 verses of the Gospel. And you might be wondering, why? Why are we spending so much time in these first few verses? Well, here's the reason. <clears throat> John sets up themes in his prologue that he will continue throughout the rest of his writing. Think of strands that span the length of a tapestry. John will continue to use these themes to make his points throughout the span of his gospel. You could think of a piece of classical music, right? A composer uses variations in themes, or themes and variations is the term. And the composer sets up themes that will show up in varying ways and at various times throughout the piece of music. And that's precisely what John is doing. He is setting up themes that he will draw upon and expand upon later as we go throughout the gospel. Now, I just want you to humor me for one moment here. I want, you, I want to introduce the theme to you by doing something a little different. I would like for all of us just to close our eyes for a number of seconds. I know we've been in prayer for uh, a number of moments throughout this service, but I want you just to close your eyes. All together, we're, we're just gonna close our eyes just for a couple moments. They're, when they're closed, and I'm the lucky one that gets to see if you're actually doing this or not. Um, here's what I want you to do. Think back to when you were quite literally and physically in a dark place. And I don't mean emotionally or psychologically. I mean like literally, physically, in the darkest place you've ever been in. Now keep going with me here. Try to remember how tough it was to see your own limbs. You couldn't tell how far away anything was as you moved around. Maybe you're in your bedroom and your blackout curtains are down or there was a cave that you went into one time or if you're like me, you're going down into a basement and you hadn't made it to the light switch yet. Maybe you could hear voices but you couldn't see anyone. 
Just remember for a moment what it was like to exist in complete darkness. Okay, you can open your eyes. Thank you for humoring me. Now you get to look at my face some more. One of the themes that John introduces very early in his gospel is the theme of darkness versus light. And the exercise we just did was simply to emphasize our own experiential relationship with physical light and physical darkness. You see, what John is doing is he's playing upon our experience of light and darkness, but really he's doing that as a metaphor. And what I mean by that is that he's using light and darkness as a metaphor for other very real, concrete, spiritual realities that we experience. In some of the first sentences of his writing, he talks about darkness existing as a spiritual category that makes sense of ourselves and our world. He says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness John is talking about isn't the physical experience of darkness. He is talking about a spiritual reality that is just as real as your experience of the darkest place you have ever been in. For John, our physical experience of darkness directly relates to a spiritual malady that plagues each of us and our world. What exactly is this darkness? What is this spiritual reality he is talking about? Well, it's easiest if I introduce a biblical category to make quick sense of it, and that, that is that darkness is essentially sin. Sin is an experience of spiritual darkness, and this darkness takes on many forms. Go with me here. Let me share some examples with you. Let's start with darkness that exists around us, outside of us. Often we can see that. Think of COVID and the rampant toll it has taken on our world, the loss of human lives, the division that it's caused, the mental health and the physical health issues that have exponentially multiplied as a result. We're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow. Think of the history of segregation in our country. Think of all the continuing effects of that injustice today, the lingering effects of redlining and blockbusting, the new problems like for-profit prisons that amassed $87 billion just in 2015 alone, or think of mass incarceration. The United States imprisons more of its citizens than any other country, and this disproportionately affects people who are in poverty and people of black and brown skin. The darkness that exists in our world around us doesn't stop with those examples. It can be easy to point out things aren't as they should be, and we just see that. We can recognize that. But John is operating under the assumption that the darkness doesn't just exist around us. It also exists within us. This expresses itself in various forms too. Darkness in us is our bodily decay and our death. It's the struggle with chronic physical pain. It's disease. It's aging. It's our own inevitable death. Darkness is, is in us is our tendency to serve our needs at the cost of other people's needs. Darkness in us comes out in our relationships, in our fracturing of families, the loss of relationships, in divorce. Darkness is our tendency to consistently and routinely think about our best interests before the interests of others, both in our daily lives, in our politics, and in the institutions that we support. Our tendency is often towards selfishness. There are many examples of the darkness within us. And I could go on. I like to think that John is a realist. It's like he's saying, take a good look at the world. <laughs> 
Take a good look at yourself. What do you see? There is darkness in us and around us. And at this point, you're probably thinking, Ben, this is a really uplifting sermon. Thank you for this. Well, there's hopeful news too. John says that there is an answer to this darkness that we experience. Look with me at the beginning of our passage this morning. What are the first three words? The true light is what John says. There is a true light that frees us and frees the world from spiritual darkness. If you think you might have a sneaking suspicion of what that true light is, then your intuition is most likely right. John is saying something very simple. Only Jesus can overcome the darkness in you and around you. It's almost like he's saying, hey, this is clear cut. Don't miss this. Don't get distracted. There is only one answer. There is one true light. In our passage, John shows us how Jesus overcomes the darkness in us and around us, and it's through three movements. That's how John does it, three movements. We see the darkness, we receive the light, and we walk as children of the light. So that's see the darkness, receive the light, and walk as children of the light. Let me show you that. Look again with me at how John begins our passage. The verses will be up on the screen behind me, starting in verse 9. John says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. To put it in other words, Jesus comes as the true light, And we have the choice to receive the light or to stay in the darkness. John is essentially saying that those who reject the light are those who prefer to remain in darkness. This is an active choice. It doesn't just happen. And this is actually in line with what Jesus says, too, about those who reject him. When Jesus talks about the people who ultimately reject him, he calls the place in which they go and which they exist the outer darkness. That's the language Jesus uses in the Gospel of Matthew three times. And I've been a pastor for a good 10 minutes now. And I can't remember all the conversation with people that I have uh, uh, about faith. It's something that I really enjoy. And if I'm honest with you, the greatest challenge to faith that I can tell is rarely an intellectual one. There are a few people that I've had conversations with who are truly and honestly trying to make sense of Christianity, and I have great respect for that journey. The greatest challenge that I have seen to faith is not an intellectual challenge. It's something else. John actually names it later on in his gospel. It comes three verses after the most, arguably the most famous verse, Bible verse of our day, which is John 3.16. Look with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And here it is in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. The greatest challenge to faith that I have experienced is not an intellectual one. It's really a moral one. It's the embodiment of that famous Chesterton quote, Christianity has not been found tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and left untried. Jesus comes as the true light, but we have the choice to receive the light 
or stay in the darkness. And John wants us to be able to see the darkness for what it is. He wants us to be able to open our eyes to see the things that we have the tendency to not want to see. John is calling for us by the way of true light to open our eyes to the darkness in us and around us. He says later in his writing that darkness has blinded the eyes. John doesn't want us to be blinded by darkness. And here are two forms of blindness that I just want to mention. The first form of blindness is this. We choose to not see what we don't want to see. We choose to not see what we don't want to see. In this form of blindness, either we aren't able to see and discern what is the darkness in us and around us, or we aren't, we aren't willing to see the darkness. We're not able to discern it or see it. We're not willing to see it. And here's what I mean. Sometimes there are things in our hearts and in our lives we don't really want to look at. We would rather hide them away. These things are the hidden parts of our heart. We keep these desires or loves or hopes or even addictions in darkness because we're fearful of bringing them into the light and what that might do to us. There's also darkness around us, and that's difficult to open our eyes to as well. Yesterday, quite a few of us, we braved the snow and the roads, and we got on a bus and took the Dividing Lines tour across Kansas City. It's difficult to open our eyes to acknowledge how greed has preyed upon race in our city. Have you ever wondered why resources feel so insulated in parts of our city? The tour sheds light on the redlining and blockbusting that impacted the formation of our city, the development or lack of, the de of, lack of development of whole communities, and you see it while you're driving. Do we choose to not see what we don't want to see, both inside us and around us? Are we willfully blind to it? This is the first form of blindness. The second form of blindness is this, an inability to distinguish between what is the true light and what are other lights. I'll say that again. There's a form of blindness that's an inability to be able to distinguish between what is the true light and what are just other so-called lights. And this is what I'm driving at. There are a lot of products and people and companies and institutions that are claiming to be the true light that you need. There's always a new self-help book that hits the New York Times bestseller list that promises the secret to your contentment, the secret to your self-image and to your success. There's always a company that has developed a new product that promises to change your life. There's always a new philosophy of living that promises to simplify your life and rid you of personal discontent. There's always people or institution that promises solutions wholly apart from Jesus to the problematic injustices that plague our world. Sometimes we have a hard time distinguishing between the lights and the one true light that John is talking about. It's not a coincidence that later in John's gospel, John records Jesus saying this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We need the one true light. That's what we need. We need the one who saves us from blindness and who gives us, offers us the light of life. And if you have a genuine desire for that, to see the darkness in you and around you, I want to encourage you to pray in two ways, just practical takeaways. First is really simple, something like this, just a simple prayer. Lord, pluck the desires 
or pluck the darkness out of my heart. Give me the eyes to see the ways that I am blind. I'm blind to the darkness in me and around me. That's the first prayer. The second is a bit of a longer form of prayer. It's the Ignatian prayer of examine. And there are five steps to this prayer. The first step is to ask God for light. And by doing this, you're saying, I want to look at myself, my world, and my daily life with God's eyes and not merely my own. Then you give thanks. You recognize that each day is a gift from God and you choose to be grateful for it. Next is a review of the day. So I look back on my day I have just completed and I ask the Holy Spirit to guide my conscience as I'm reviewing it. Then I face the darkness. Here I'm confessing the ways that I lived into darkness that day. And last is to look forward to the day to come. This is just asking for help to walk in the light the following day. See, John asks us to open our eyes and to see the darkness that only Jesus overcomes. That's the first movement. But John doesn't start there, stop there. He, just want, he doesn't want us just to see the darkness, right? Like that's incomplete. He also wants us to receive the light. And in other words, and I put it up there, this is embrace being the beloved. And I'll explain that more, but first look with me at the next part of our passage this morning, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we talked about those who reject the light and who choose darkness. But what about those who choose to receive the light? What about those people? What happens to them? John says that they become children of God, born not of blood, but of God. He's talking about a complete change in spiritual identity. And I personally love John's language of being God's children. It's like one of my favorite things about how John writes. And at some point this week, you should just skip to John's epistles. Just like flip through John's epistles, like 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and just look at how often he uses the words little children or children or beloved. He just uses them repeatedly. It's almost like he starts every paragraph in those books with one of those words. I think John is communicating something very important there. John is connecting our being the children of God with our being completely and wholly loved by God. About a week ago, I was talking with a close friend on the phone, and he's just been going through it. Um, and we were talking about what it looks like for us as Christians to walk through seasons of grief and pain and maybe even spiritual dryness. And we were externally processing just our expectations for the Christian life and the difference between our expectations of it versus the actual process of what it looks like to mature as a Christian. <laughs> Sometimes our expectations are very different from reality, aren't they? My friend brought up this old hymn by John Newton. And if you don't know John Newton, he's got like a crazy life story. He was this like, um, he was just this crazy guy who was in the Navy and they ended up like selling him into slavery because he was so insane. And so he, he was sold into slavery and then he came to know Jesus in slavery. And then he ended up being the captain of a slave ship and then ended up being convic convicted by God 
of what he was doing. So he left that and became an abolitionist in Great Britain and mentored William Wilberforce and others in uh, the abolition of slavery over in England. So he's got like this crazy life story and he also wrote a bunch of hymns and one of the hymns is entitled, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And in the hymn, John Newton writes that he asked the Lord to take away his sin so his soul might find rest. But John Newton said this, he writes in his hymn, instead of doing that, he says the Lord chose to assault his soul. Those are the words that he puts. And I laugh at that because I'm like, we probably wouldn't sing that in our worship songs today. The Lord chose to assault my soul. And Newton, he prayed, and it's in the hymn, Lord, why like this? Why do this? And the Lord responded, because this is the way I answer prayer, in grace and mercy. This was the tone and tenor of my conversation with my friend. (laughs) And in the course of this conversation, I was externally processing with him my experiences of the deep spiritual discomfort or even apathy that I go through at times and have gone through in different times of my life. And here's what I, where I go. I always find myself in those seasons going back to scripture that I know will remind me that I'm completely and wholly loved by God. I always just find myself like leaning towards those scriptures. And in this conversation, I was working through why I do that. I was like, why, why do I do that? Is that actually kind of cheap? Is it a band-aid on a deeper issue? Is this kind of a shortcut or a spiritual shortcut? And then I realized, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense to me. And let me explain why I think it does. What is one of the beauties of marriage? Like, what is one of the primary beauties of marriage? One of the primary beauties of marriage, as far as I can tell, is this simple fact, that there's a person next to you who you have committed your life to, who knows all your flaws, all your shortcomings, all your tendencies, your failures, and all your goodnesses too. They just know it all. And in the midst of all of that, where do they go? They stay next to you. And they say, I know all of you. And guess what? I am committed to you. And I love you. So what I'm doing when I find myself going to those places in scripture during times of the dark night of the soul or spiritual discomfort or apathy, I am looking for that same reminder. I'm looking to hear God say to me, I know all of you, Ben. I am committed to you. I love you. You are my son. There is something so healing about those words. They speak to the deepest parts of who we are. And some of us here, we need this simple reminder this morning that God knows all of you. He is fully committed to you and he loves you. The Christian spiritualist, Henri Nouwen, he writes in his book, Life of the Beloved, Spiritual Living in a Secular World, he says this, the world tells you many lies about who you are, and you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am a chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in an everlasting belief. This is what it means to be a child of God. 
It's okay to need that reminder. Now one's point is that when we live from that place of being the beloved, then we aren't trying to earn our way to that love. What we're doing is receiving the transformative power of the one true light. So only Jesus can overcome the darkness in us and around us. And he does it by showing us the darkness and by offering us his light that makes us his children. And there's one more thing that he does in this movement, John does. Jesus overcomes the darkness when we walk as children of the light. Jesus overcomes the darkness when we walk, walk as children of the light. So what do I mean when, it, when I mean walk as children of the light? Well, I'm giving you a clue on the screen behind me because it has something to do with confronting darkness with light. But I want to start with an example and then I'll move to scripture. One of the voices I've been reading for some time now is a guy by the name of Daniel Berrigan. And that's his picture up there. Berrigan was a Jesuit priest, very gifted poet and writer. He's most famous for being a peace activist he had the reputation for being the theological brain that was behind advocating for peace. So Berrigan marched at Selma in the civil rights movement. He was an advocate for peace as the Vietnam War went on and on. And similar to Martin Luther King Jr., he even spent time in prison for his nonviolent protests. In the picture behind me, he's smiling and he's throwing up the peace sign, which is pretty cool. It's like the background on my phone. I think he's kind of cool. But what is sometimes harder to see is that he's actually handcuffed. <laughs> He talked and wrote a lot about the difficulty of trying to live out our calling as children of the light. And he says that the difficulty of living as children of the light, as children of God, is partially because the world numbs us to the darkness and expects conformity to it. And I don't agree with everything Berrigan did or wrote, but listen to what he writes here. There are those to whom the state is given, the church is a given, Western culture is a given, war is a given, consumerism a given. Paying taxes is a given. All the neat slots of existence into which one fits, birth to death and every point in between. Nothing to be created, no one to be responsible to, nothing to risk, no, ob no objections to lodge. Life is a mechanical, horizontal sidewalk of the kind you sometimes ride at airports between buildings. One is carried along, a zonked spectator. <laughs> Berrigan's point here is that what Jesus offers us and offers the world is an alternative way of living that is different than what the world offers. And here's the rub. If we say we believe in the light, then as children of the light, we must have the integrity to confront the darkness with the light. That is where the rubber meets the road. If we say we're children of the light, we have to have the integrity to confront the darkness with the light. He says in an interview, the first question is how we are living our lives, not what we are advising others to do. I'd like to see the church a little more modest in that way. I'd like to see myself a little more modest in that way. Let's act as if the gospel were true and it might become true. Berrigan was very keen on making sure that, we, that there's this direct synthesis between what we say we believe and what we actually live out. Now look with me at what John has to say in his first chapter of his first epistle. You'll see that same synthesis between what we say we believe and how we live. John writes this, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here are two practical ways we can walk as children of the light. First is this, practice the rite of confession. Confess your darkness, confess your sin to God. He is faithful and just to forgive you. You are his beloved. His blood was shed to cleanse you in John's words. Let's walk in the light as he is in the light. And the second is this. I'm gonna borrow from Berrigan one more time. He once said, the only religious genius I can recognize is that of example. In some ways, I think it's that simple. What is your example? Reflect upon your example. How is God prompting you and calling you to confront the darkness with the light? What is your example to a world in darkness, a world in desperate need of the true light? How are you offering the one true light to a world that needs Jesus? As we wrap up here, let me remind you that only Jesus can overcome the darkness in us and around us. That's what John is saying. Jesus asks us to take a look at the darkness, to not be willfully blind. He asks us to receive his light, to embrace our being his eternally beloved. And then he calls us his children to not walk in darkness, but to walk in fellowship with him and with others as children of the light. And I think it's only appropriate to share what Martin Luther King Jr. said in a collection of sermons in Strength to Love. I know that I've quoted a lot here. But it's almost as though Martin Luther King was soaked in the Gospel of John. Because he writes this, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. May we be the light that drives out the darkness. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for your words. We thank you that you keep your promises. We thank you that the light, the one true light, shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the answer. We have hope because of you. Lord, help us to embrace being the beloved. Help us to see the darkness in us and around us. Help us to receive the light that you offer. Lord, we love you. Father, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.